Andy Murray winning Wimbledon in 2013. Not far away from here, in West London, a startup was making promising progress delivering takeaways from restaurants after launching a few months earlier. Today, 10 years on, that company, Deliveroo, has been through some highs and lows. But it is one of very few British tech companies to go from promising startup to big business. I'm Graham Ruddick, and this is Business Studies, a podcast that takes a second look at big business stories from the past. In this episode, we speak to Will Shu, the co-founder and chief executive of Deliveroo, about founding his business, building it over the last 10 years, and the challenges he has faced. I was working in New York for about three years out of university, 2004, I was transferred here. And in New York, everything was delivered. But you would just call the place. Yes, I think Seamless might have taken off at that time, but it wasn't so much an internet phenomenon. Deliveries in New York had been around since the 1940s. And when I moved to London, you know, I think I've told the story before. I was working at a bank in Canary Wharf and we had to work late. And the options for dinner were, were always Tesco, like microwave meals. And I just thought, well, how could this be in a city with so many great options? And so thought about it really in 04 and eventually tried players like Just Eat. And, and I think when I tried, you know, getting delivery in, in London, it tended to be restricted to a certain type of restaurant. These were mostly takeaway restaurants. And I wanted something different. Your neighborhood Italian place, your neighborhood Thai place, those were lacking. Didn't really do anything about it. I was working in finance. I was pretty busy. And when I went back to the States in 2010, I did an MBA degree in Philadelphia between 2010 and 2012. I saw this world of offline to online happening. Now, the reason Deliveroo exists um, and Uber and a lot of these other companies, a lot of it has to do with the just, just the iPhone um, and tablets becoming available, right? The iPhone came out in 07. The SDK, so the, the, the app ecosystem came out in 08. And those things were a precondition to businesses like ours taking off, right? But I didn't know that at the time. I just knew that when I, when, when I was in Philadelphia, I was trying out all these things. And I was like, this is incredible. And I've always wanted to get great delivery in London. So I came back to start it. Well, when you were setting up the business, I read that you nearly called it, Boo, was it Booze Hound? Booze Food? Yeah, it was called... Um, <laughs> How close are you actually to calling it Booze Food? I mean, kind of close. I mean... The idea, so the, the the reason behind booze food, I mean, is a little embarrassing, but um, <laughs> it's true though. It is true. Uh, back in you know oh four oh five, one of the things um, that really irritated me is you go to the pub, you get back, and there's literally nothing you can order except maybe a kebab that'll show up three hours later. So I thought initially this could be a really great niche market going after people you know who who were out at the pub, they wanted something fast. But eventually I discovered that maybe the market was bigger than that. When were the moments you realized that there was something there and that you wanted to grow it out? Um, I'd say that the traction we had happened relatively early because um, I'd say the first thing is when we approached restaurants. So I sort of approached restaurants before we had a demo. 
I just had this piece of paper and I explained to them how it worked and they just wouldn't listen to us. But Greg built, you know, a really great demo eventually and we were able to showcase this to restaurants. And, you know, 10 years ago, the fact that you had this tablet, this printer, this consumer website, this rider app and how they all interacted, the three sides of the marketplace was sort of like magic to some of these restaurant owners. So we got some initial traction that way. I think on the consumer side, the reason... Well, I'd say one thing that got me excited was I had a lot of friends still. In, I have a lot of friends in London. They didn't know what I was up to for like two years of business school. So I came back. They're like, what are you doing? And I'm like, oh, I'm starting this thing. And everyone's like, oh, that sounds not smart. But 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 they're like, we'll support you. And so they would. I would beg them to order and I would deliver the food. And I actually think the reason they ordered initially was they just thought it was really funny that I would come and deliver their food for them, right? Um, but eventually, I noticed that even if I didn't deliver the food, they would still order. And very quickly, there was a word of mouth, you know, in in Chelsea where where we started the neighborhood and got more restaurants on, and it was very clear the customer demand was there, right? So that was one turning point when I kind of didn't have to deliver the food anymore every single time and my friends would still order. So I was like, okay, I don't need to convince them to do it. I don't need to call them. That's what I kind of knew. Hey, maybe we're on to something. You've said before you had no plans to be an entrepreneur when you started out. So were you sort of aware of what it would take when, when you started out? No, not at all. Right. I mean, and, and I would say that for me, I came from it as I am the consumer, right? I'm building something for myself that hopefully will resonate with other people. And I think that's the way it should be, right? You have a passion for something. You're experienced in a sector. I think those are the two reasons you start a company. I think just starting a business for the sake of starting a business may be fine. I don't know, but that's not the way I would think about it. Since he founded Deliveroo, Will Shu has faced scepticism and questions about the business. As you heard there, there was initially scepticism from his friends when he spoke about his idea. And there is scepticism in the city today about how much Deliveroo can still grow and whether it can really become a profitable operation. So how has he dealt with this? I, th- I don't think it's like the easiest thing in the world, but I, I, I think I might be lucky in the sense that I don't really care too much what other people think. I mean, I'm going to care somewhat, right? I don't think, you know, none of us are completely immune to it. We all have egos, but I don't know. I don't read I don't read the press about Deliveroo. I'm sorry, our comms person is here, Romilly, and she's, but it's true. I don't read about it. I, I just focus on the consumer and I'm able to sort of filter some of that stuff out. Yeah, quite. I mean, you can ask my friends who've known me for 20 years, whatever. I'm, I'm just not someone who like is, is super obsessed about what other people think for, for better or worse, I guess. Who do you listen to for, for opinions and for views on the business? Um, I listen to a wide range of people, right? When, when I say that I don't necessarily care what people think, I, I mean that when it's like sort of harsh criticism that sort of thing. I'm very open-minded about listening to feedback. I think I listen to our consumers the most, right? When things go wrong with merchants, riders, and our consumers, I get emails every single day. I talk to partners. I do deliveries. I listen to that type of feedback probably the most. I have a great team around me on the exec side. I have a great chair I work with, you know, so, so I listen to that. 
Um, so I don't want to make it sound like I, I don't listen to other people, but I think I don't get super emotional about people criticizing me or or the business. How often do you still do deliveries? I try to do them once a month. Um, I live in Notting Hill, so I just get on my bike and, and just do a few. I enjoy it. I think it's fun. And then, oh, also when I visit other markets, I always do it. So I was in Hong Kong recently. Um, I did them on foot in the central district going up and down the hills. That was that was a good cardio workout. Um, <laughs> I did them in Dubai. It's very hard. You have to drive around in Dubai. It's very different than Hong Kong. Um, in Italy, I'd recently did them as well. Looking back now, what would you say the key skills that you've needed to be as an entrepreneur and then as a CEO to get the business to this stage? Uh, you, they're just very different stages, right? We're, we're 10 years old. We're a publicly traded business now. Um, my responsibilities today are so different than they were a year ago. So I guess it's something you can train for, but it, but it's not. A lot of it's just self-discovery, I would say. So maybe I'll talk more about traits as opposed to skills, because I, I think you need to be optimistic. I think you need to be really resilient. I think you can't care too much about what other people think. You have to have a belief in what you're doing. Um and I think you need to recognize what you're good at and what you're not good at and make sure you supplement that. You touched on it there, the different stages this business has been through. You are one of the few UK businesses that have gone from promising tech startup to medium-sized business to large business. You've scaled this business up when others have either disappeared or been sold. Well, I would say more than that. I mean, the first year was literally two guys sitting around. Well, one wasn't even in the UK, right? It's me sitting on my sofa, right? So... I'd say it's more than that because it's very – I'd say one critical difference is now – I know venture capital now is a, you know having its own issues, but you can have an idea and raise $10 million. That wasn't the case 10 years ago. Maybe it was in Silicon Valley. It certainly wasn't here. How did you take the business through the stage and promising startup to scaling it up? That, that phase that so many businesses I think struggle with where you start to give up control of certain areas where – other people start to hire people into the business rather than you? I think first and foremost, um, we just had product market fit. We had a product that people wanted, right? On the merchant side, on the rider side, on the consumer side. And once you're able to have that, a lot of the other stuff sort of takes care of itself. And then I'd say making sure you're aware of what you're good at and what you're not good at and making sure you plug those holes in really, really hard, right? And the other thing I'd say is, and, and this may sound counterintuitive, I am in all the details. Like, I can't help it, for better or worse. And I think being in the details also means I listen to the feedback that our consumers give us all the time. When you say you're listening to details, can you give us a sort of an example? What sort of things are you looking at? Okay, I'll give you a few, right? So sometimes it's looking at a data set just completely differently, right? I'm looking at a series of deliveries that have gone wrong. I'm, I'm going through them sort of methodically and trying to see if I can see a pattern. Uh, another one is I'm doing deliveries and I notice that certain restaurants are, you know, make it difficult for me to get the food. Maybe they don't put it in a way that's easy or I am using a competitor's app and I'm like, this thing's great, right? I wish I had thought of that. So that primary research angle, whether that's from data or whether that's from just firsthand experience, I think is incredibly important for founders. Deliveroo floated in London in March 2021 amid much fanfare. It was the biggest tech float in London ever and the biggest float of any kind for 10 years since Glencore in 2011. 
Deliveroo was valued at £7.6 billion in the float. However, shares in the company fell 26% on the first day of trading. Two years on, shares in Deliveroo are down around two-thirds from the float price, and London's attractiveness relative to New York as a place for tech companies to list is in focus more than ever. Do you wish you'd done it in New York rather than London? Um, no, I don't know that. Look, look, at the end of the day, we've got over a billion pounds of cash on our balance sheet. We have no debt. Uh, we're in a super strong position. And so, you know, could we have done that in New York? Sure. Could we have done that in London? We did. Um, so I don't have any regrets about that. There's been a lot of commentary recently about London's attractiveness or lack of it relative to New York. What's your take on that? I, I guess that there are a few things, right? And I would separate the two. One is listing regime. And the other one is attractiveness of the country to do business in. And I think they're totally different, right? I think a lot of the media focus is on listing regime. And listing regime, to me, I don't know if it's that relevant. I know a lot of people think it is because ultimately it's an it's, it's a indication of how the domestic companies are doing. So I can, I can get that. But I think the more important thing is, can we grow businesses in the UK? And I think more focus on that, I, I think, is, is important. And I and I do think there's a lot of things we could do to help that ecosystem more. Like what? Well, I think um, you know encouraging more risk taking, encouraging people to you know have a business and 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 grow it and not not sell it you know immediately. I think a mentality that things can go wrong when when you grow a business and you know it 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 shouldn't just be yeah that there's ups and downs and people should understand that story. Well, I'm just thinking out loud here, but like. I, I think in this country, you know, I think the media, um, you know, no, no, I'm not criticizing this. Yeah, but I, I'm just saying the media um, can be can be pretty harsh on on companies when they're five years old, six years old, and I think just sort of understanding that context a bit and being a little more encouraging. And, and I, I certainly try to encourage founders. The thing that I'm probably most proud of at Deliveroo, one of the things I'm most proud of, is we've had 50 people start companies out mm-hmm. of this place, right? And I think that's a really positive thing for the country. Um, I think it's a really positive thing for enterprise and risk-taking. And just having more companies start here and people seeing success will reinforce that this is a, this is a possibility, right? And it's not just, you know, a, a one-off. Why is that 50 number? Is that because they've been in an environment that has helped them to understand what's required? Is it the fact that they've made money because the business has done so well? I think it's more the former, right? They've seen what's possible. So if you look around, I mean, Sten started Zigo, you had Alberto and Yusuf start Deja, you had Dan Warren start Sessions, Anton started Taster. I mean, some of these businesses are very sizable now. And I think because they were early employees and they saw what was possible, that they were encouraged to do this, right? And I think that encouragement is, is it's, it's not just capital, it's the mentality about, is it possible? On your point there about mentality and, and, and risk-taking, there's, there's been conversations that there is an aversion to risk in the UK. And, and a sort of common theme that's come up in, in the podcast interviews I've done is, it's clear with you as well, and under, there's a greater understanding of risk. There is where it's possible to take it and that certain risks are not as risky as the outside world may perceive. Is that what this is? It's, it's that there needs to be a greater understanding of risk. I think a greater acceptance of risk. And I think a greater acceptance that, yeah, Things can go well. They can they can go poorly. But I think if if all we're focused on in the UK is dividends and cash flow yield, 
then yeah, it will be mining and tobacco all day long, right? It will be defense. It will be banks, right? I would love to see this country. Um, I, I love this country. You know, have more risk takers, right? And 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 build more enterprises here. How does that happen? Does that happen through more businesses being built? I think so. I think so. So it's a loop, right? Um, I think you know they need to be encouraged to do it. They need to see successes. And I think you know I think the government's doing a lot of good things around that. But end of the day, it it has to be that ecosystem. Hey, like this guy started a company. He or she can help kind of advise on on the next thing and you have this loop happening i think that's really really important does it frustrate you talking to institutions in the city today when there is the focus on dividends and cash flow we have plenty of british investors in our business i, I just think though the the sort of american you know mindset or maybe the the even the chinese mindset or a lot of these other you know growing economies is that there is more future focus than kind of what is happening right now now Currently, obviously, technology companies in the U.S. and China are hammered, right? So, you know, you, you could argue, well, hey, in the end, you know, these 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 mining companies were the way to go because commodity prices went up. But I think in the long term, having businesses focused, you know, on technology, having businesses focused on growth, and encouraging people to take some risk is 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 important because otherwise, you just have an economy that is focused on tick box checking, dividends. Um, all of that stuff, which is fine in the short term, but I think in the long term, not as not as good. How much has the ecosystem changed over the ten year period? Has it improved? Because you've touched on this a little bit, but as a venture capital fund, would never just give money to someone with an idea ten years ago. We now have sort of a much bigger venture capital ecosystem in the UK. Clearly, in that period, yeah. there's been fifty founders that have come from this business alone. Does that start to have a sort of virtuous circle effect? I hope so. I hope so. I think the venture capital space here is very different than it was ten years ago. Um, a lot of the funds coming in are American funds, right? They've set out outposts here, and and v- venture capital is a very global business. I think on the institutional investment side, may, maybe not so much. Uh, sorry, institutional equity investment, UK, you know, pension funds, et cetera. I don't think that's quite the same yet. But let's also be clear, the VC world got completely out of hand for a while. So I, I think you'll see some of that stuff rebase, just like you did in the public equity markets. And, and we'll see what happens. But the most important thing, again, I don't think is capital, it's mentality. I, if there's one thing I want to emphasize is if there's anything we can do to encourage that in this country for people to start their own enterprises, for people to want to work for growth companies and not just do the safe thing, I, I think is really important. I'm sure the pushback from people will be, yeah, but look at what's happened to tech companies in the last you know, six months on the stock market and all of that stuff. But wanting to build, um, having that mentality, I think I just think is really, really important. And I hope, I, I would love to see, you know, the UK do more of that. Do you, you're so passionate about this issue. Do you see, do you have plans to be an angel investor yourself? Is it something you want to do? I am an angel investor. My problem is I'm a very detailed person. So it's actually a bit difficult for me to just kind of just write a bunch of checks without like understanding that obviously it's super early stage. You don't know what's going to happen, but like I need to meet the people. I need to like, you know, chat to them, understand their business model a bit, right? 50 people out of this company starting businesses, I think is remarkable. And I think it's one of these things where, you know, you read the media headlines, it's always like, blah, 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 company sucks, blah, 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 company, UK dead, listings. And it's like, hey, why don't we celebrate the fact people start businesses here and encourage people to do that instead of just doom and gloom all day about how everything is terrible 
and how, you know, tech companies are overvalued. And at the end of the day, you know, like 50 years from now, what's going to happen? You're going to, the mining companies are going to be gone. The banks, who knows? Tobacco is going to be gone. And then what? What are you left with? And so not to like go history about this, but you think about the history of the United Kingdom and, and the risk taking that happened with the Dutch East Indies Company building railroads, you know, all of this innovation took place here. I, I just want to be clear, like there was a lot of bad stuff that happened as well, but there were a lot of risk takers in this place, right? A lot of them. And it shouldn't be 200 years ago or 100 years ago, right? It should be now. But the problem is, is it not that because of that innovation now, we've, is there a sort of inherent belief that we have something to protect? Of course, that's life, right? That's like you walk around London, you see all these beautiful buildings and it's like this was CapEx that was, you know, spent 150 years ago based on some of the innovations then. And you become comfortable in all of this. But I, I do believe, I mean, still some of the world's great invention, you know, and innovations are here. Right. And and I think if we can if we can have that you know, mentality a bit, I think it's all. But you look at the U.S., it's like, OK, the U.S. is a young country, but they've been doing this for quite some time. They've been pushing this agenda. Not that the U.S. has a lot of issues. I mean, you know, just violence. I mean, all kinds of terrible stuff, inequality. But the risk-taking side, I, I think, is, 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 is a decent one. Do you see yourself doing this job forever? Do I see myself doing this job forever? I don't know. You know, I don't know. I'm not a planner. Like, I, I don't really sit around saying, what am I going to do in two years, five years? I've enjoyed the journey so far. Really proud of what we've accomplished over 10 years. But, you know, ultimately, like... You know, what am I doing in five, ten years? I don't know. The employment status of the riders that Deliveroo uses has been a matter for debate since the company was founded. Deliveroo uses more than 150,000 riders to deliver its takeaway orders. I'm sure you've seen them. They are distinguishable thanks to the striking Deliveroo logo and the colour of their bags. However, they're not actually employed directly by Deliveroo. They're classed as self-employed. Last year, Deliveroo agreed a deal with the GMB trade union that meant that these riders were represented by a trade union. However, the debate rages on. First of all, we can always do better. I mean, I think that's the first thing. But the thing I think that's a little bit different about this business versus maybe some of our competitors or other companies in the sector is I did do deliveries every single day for a year. So I know the original cohort of, 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 of riders because I sat in Starbucks with them waiting for orders. And so I, I, know, I know how they think very well, right? Um, and I think that's permeated through our organization. If you, look, if you talk to Charlie, who runs Rider Product, or you, you talk to Camilla, who, who, who's been working here for eight years, the rider empathy side is, is just very, very high. We think about them as consumers. That, that's how we think about them. So, and it's a competitive market. You've got Uber, Amazon, et cetera, they're all you know, looking for the same pool of labor. But here's what I'd say. I would say whatever criticisms people want to make, there's one thing that is true. We have had the tightest labor market the UK has ever seen in a really long time, starting from sort of the beginning, well, sort of during COVID and then and also sort of when restrictions got lifted. Our retention rates for our riders are through the roof. Our application funnels are massive. Our riders could get a job anywhere else. They could go work in a restaurant. They can go work in Tesco. They can do all those things and they choose to work with us. And so ultimately, that is what's most important to me. We can write a bunch of editorial pieces and, and all of that. We, we, can, we can, you know, have these abstract discussions. 
I encourage people to look at the numbers, look at the satisfaction rates, and look at the retention rates of the people that work with us, because I think that actually tells the real story at the end of the day. How often do you sit down and debate whether to change the structure and bring all the riders in-house? Change the structure about, and make I, them I think employees. about different models all the time, but why would we do that when that's not what the riders want? The number one reason riders work with us is flexibility. And by the way, it's not a full-time job for the vast majority of them, right? They log in for, what, eight hours, 10 hours. They, they, they fit work around their lives. Here, here's the thing. You can, first of all, log in and log out whenever you want. You can accept or reject any order. We tell you how much it is and where you're going. You can decide to do it. You can also work for an Amazon. You can also work for an Uber. So this is pure two-way flexibility. And that is just something that you know, hasn't been a part of the economy until we started it. And I'm actually very proud of the fact we offer people this type of work. Now, you ask, what are the things we can do better? Well, I've always pushed for benefits, right? So we, we were the first company to offer free insurance for riders in, in terms of time off if they're sick, if, if you know, um, we offer a pay once they have a child. So we didn't have to do these things, but we wanted to offer them because it's a competitive market and you need to have a better offer than other people. But I also strongly believe that, you know, offering benefits is, is important, right? And so we want to do more of those things. You reached an agreement with the GMB trade union last year. Why, why did you do that? Well, the GMB, I think, are, are people, and, and I've spent a bunch of time with Gary and Mick there where they recognize that people want flexible work, right? And this is a part of the economy that is growing and growing and growing. They want to be able to shape the future of that. And having sat down with them numerous times, I'm like, these guys get it. We want to work with the UK's third largest labor union to, to, to really dictate what that future of flexible work looks like. So it's been a great relationship. Deliveroo's competitors include some of the biggest tech companies in the world, such as Uber. However, its shareholders also include one of the biggest tech companies in the world, Amazon. In 2019, Deliveroo announced that Amazon was buying a 16% stake in the business. However, this attracted the attention of the Competition and Markets Authority, and a long investigation started. The process started in 2019. We were working with an investment bank called Allen & Company out of New York. They introduced us to Amazon, I forget exactly how, just to say, hey, like Amazon's been looking at this space. Maybe they'd be interested in talking to you guys. One thing led to another. Um, they did a ton of due diligence on us, and it culminated in them taking a minority stake in the business in, I think, April 19. I guess the sad part about that whole thing was we then went through an 18-month antitrust process with the CMA, which in my mind, just total bullshit. I mean, it still is. I mean, they were a 13% shareholder with no special rights, and they ran an investigation for 18 months that took up most of my time, withheld the money from us, and we had to fire 30% of our team during that process because we almost ran out of cash. For me, total bullshit. They only said they approved that deal in the end because you said you need that money, otherwise you would... I don't even know what their reason is. I mean, they had no justification for it whatsoever. This is a complete mockery of of anything, in in my view. Is it when you say it took up all your time, genuinely, that was something that... I was treated like a criminal, right? I'd get letters like, Mr. Shu, this email from 2014, can you explain yourself? I'm like, 2014, there are like three people at the company. I had to go testify in front of panels... 
you know, every, every, everything was sort of started from, I want to remind you of your criminal liability. So yeah, fuck that. I mean, that is the opposite of trying to build companies and trying to take risk. It's trying to kill companies. So I've got no time for that. How close was that deal to falling apart? I mean, was there a point where Amazon were like, we, we don't want to... No, Amazon this? was always incredibly supportive. They never wavered. I mean, I, I can't tell you about the CMA. I don't, I don't know where they were at. But So you, you talk about resilience. Going through that for the company is extremely painful, right? Because it's all public. It's all out there. You know, you've got your competitors writing notes to the CMA saying, oh, don't let this happen. You know, so that that was the hardest thing I had to deal with. Since this happened, have you gone back to CMA or higher levels of government to say, look, we went through this. It's completely it's completely wrong. This system needs to be improved. I've let the CMA know my views. You know, I don't know that they care, but like that's and and look, I, I, I don't it, it wasn't like I just I just think the whole thing was really wrong. That, 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 that's my view. One last question on it, and that is, how close was the business to running out of cash? So, I mean, like, really close. I fired 30% of the team. You, you think I would do that if, 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 if we weren't? No. The recent trading environment for Deliveroo has been tough. Food inflation is at more than 19% in the UK. That's the highest level for 45 years, and household spending is under strain as a result. However, there look to be some long-term opportunities ahead for Deliveroo. It is looking to expand beyond food delivery into areas like grocery delivery and health and beauty. Look, here, here's the way I sort of think about it. Um, you, you've, you've got, and I'm drawing on a piece of paper right now, you've got sort of like frequency and sort of desire to pay, right? And, and I think that frequency is highly correlated to perishability. So if something's perishable, you'll want it fast and you generally want it frequently. Then you have items that are like, I would say, not perishable, not frequent, but the desire to pay might be really high. So for example of that might be you forgot to bring your microphone to this podcast and that's a problem, right? How much would you pay to get a setup like this to you in 15 minutes if you needed to, right? You probably pay a lot. So sort of thinking through those opportunities, ranking them, I think at the epicenter is always going to be restaurant food, then grocery. And then you add on, you know, other adjacencies. But ultimately, the way I think about the business is we're an extension of that high street, right? We can bring the high street to your home. It's just a difficult task to sort of merchandise all of that properly on the app and, and sort of figure out the right delivery mechanisms for it. But I think it's really exciting. Is that is that the, the future? However long in, in, in the future? That, I do that, think that, so. That you'll be delivery will be going to every shop on the high street, taking products to people who want who need it urgently. Yeah, yeah, and I think the vast majority of it is going to be food, though. But there's a reason we're called Deliveroo and not Fooderoo, although Fooderoo is another sort of idea um, name we had. It was probably better than Booze Food. Another one we had was Food Pony, which is probably the worst worst name we can come up with. Some of that stuff on the code base is still uh, still has references to Food Pony, so I think that's it. But yeah, no, I think I think that's a fair representation. One milestone ahead for Deliveroo is the end of its dual-class share structure in 2024. This dual-class share structure was put in place at the time of the float and attracted controversy. The structure means that Will Shu has 57% of the voting rights, despite holding just 6% of the shares in Deliveroo. It's a common structure in the US that means the founder of the company still has control of it. However, the structure ends next year and that poses questions for Will Shu and Deliveroo. 
I don't know if I'm the world's best person to run this business, but I do know I'm the person that will care the most because I'm not a professional CEO. I'm sure there's people a lot more organized than I am, but I just care about every interaction on that marketplace deeper than anyone else. Um, so I do think that's important, that sort of passion and wanting to dig into the details of what went right, what went wrong, taking those learnings and, 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 and sort of um, formalizing them into processes or code, right? I, I think that's really important. But as a business gets larger and larger, you know, there's a good question of, you know, is that the right approach? I always think it is. I think every founder will argue to you that it is, but they don't know anything else either. We don't really know what the counterfactual is, right? I think on the dual share class right side, I think the idea was, hey, we want to prove out this model a bit. We want to do things our way. We want to. We want some time to sort of do that. So that that was really the reason. Does it loom on the horizon that those expire next year? Is it something that's taking up any thinking time? It's not taking too much of my thinking time. I'm obviously you know aware of that, but I think we have great relationships with our investors. You know, and we spend we spend time you know talking to them, explaining to them what we do, and ultimately you know I I think they understand our strategy. We've spoken about the difference between the US and UK and New York and London, and, and, but that is one specific area where there is a big difference. I mean, the US doesn't bat an eyelid at George's structures. They're, they're encouraged, and that is a big deal for a company, given that it affects the amount of control of the company that the founder can have. Yeah, I don't think it's the greatest thing in the world, having that go on in perpetuity or passing those rights onto your kids or whatever the structures are in place. I mean, end of the day, like, you do a good job, shareholders will want you in. You do a bad job, they should get you out. That's the way I sort of think about it. I, I do think, though, that the, the sort of time horizon of a shareholder is important, right? If you have shareholders that are just thinking about the next quarter and that's all they're thinking about, then they may make not a great decision. But if you have shareholders who are thinking both short and long term, I think they should make the decision You know, after a while, personally. You've been listening to Business Studies with me, Graham Ruddick. Our producer is Anushka Tate. If you want to listen to or read bonus content from this episode, then please sign up to our newsletter, Off to Lunch. There, you will find bonus content as well as business news and analysis throughout the week. You can sign up at offtolunch.substack.com.